This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The most important thing you can do as a policymaker and as a leader in a pandemic or an epidemic public health issue is to speak clearly, consistently, and credibly and be guided uh, by science and facts. That was the directive uh, from day one in Ebola uh, from President Obama. And he said, we are going to have a science-based, fact-based approach to all of the policy steps we take. On the coronavirus outbreak, are we now where we need to be? I think that we are not where we need to be. We're not where we need to be on testing because returning to work is going to involve understanding, you know, where those case spikes are. And uh, we're not going to possibly do that without both diagnostic testing and uh, testing for potential immunity. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Lisa Monaco served from March 2013 to January 2017 as President Obama's senior advisor for counterterrorism and homeland security, which included U.S. policy with regard to pandemics. Prior to her White House service, Lisa spent 15 years at the Department of Justice, the majority of that time serving as a career federal prosecutor and in senior management positions in both DOJ and the FBI. I just sat down with Lisa to talk about the U.S. policy response to the coronavirus. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Lisa, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you on the show again. Thanks so much, Michael. Great to be with you. So this is your second time on Intelligence Matters, and you should know, I don't think I ever told you this, but you should know that your first time was one of our most listened to episodes. Oh, that's nice to hear. Absolutely no surprise for me because you have (laughs) 
this terrific way about you of explaining complex things that smart journalists can understand them. So no surprise to me. Thank you. So we're going we're gonna to spend this entire episode today talking about the coronavirus. And I think given that, perhaps the best place to start is helping people understand why I'm talking to you, right? So as President Obama's Homeland Security and CT advisor, part of your portfolio included pandemics and epidemics and public health issues. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yep. Go ahead, please. Well, yeah, what I was going to say is, as you know, Michael, the, the role that I occupied in the White House Homeland Security Advisor was a relatively new phenomenon, right? It was created by President George W. Bush after 9-11, um, but it has evolved or it did evolve over the course of President Bush's presidency and President Obama's presidency to encompass everything from uh, terror attacks on Americans abroad and in the homeland, cyber attacks, natural disasters like hurricanes, tornadoes, you name it, floods, uh, and of course, pandemic preparedness and response. Um, And during my time in the White House for President Obama in the entire second term, that of course meant um, helping lead the response to the Ebola epidemic in 2014 and 2015. So can you, Lisa, talk about in general, what your role was within, with regard to those issues and what you saw, or more importantly, what President Obama saw as your responsibilities? Sure. So the role of the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor, broadly speaking, with respect to all of the issues that we've just mentioned, whether it's terrorism, cyber attacks, um, cybersecurity, pandemics, and natural disasters, is to be, first and foremost, the person in the White House directly and immediately responsible to the president, focusing 24-7 on those issues from a policy perspective, from a response perspective. So what does that mean? That means every morning um, when I would get my intelligence briefing, um, those are the issues that I'm focused on, in addition to the same uh, pieces of intelligence and finished intelligence products that the president is getting. My book, my PDB book, as you know, would be constructed in a way that had those things that the president was looking at, but also um, issues, intelligence products focused on uh, the set of issues that were uh, in my portfolio. And I'm focusing on those issues, what to talk to the president about um, in the mornings, uh, and then coordinating the government's policy development and implementation uh, on all of those issues. And then in a crisis, making sure that the government, all the different aspects of the government are working together as efficiently and effectively as possible to address the top needs in the middle of a crisis. And so on something like Ebola um, or in this type of crisis that we're in right now, that's going to involve lots of different moving pieces. And so if you, if this were, if this happened, uh, if this coronavirus outbreak happened during your time in the White House, you would have been right at the center of it. That's exactly right. Um, as I was for Ebola, which is obviously, as I'm sure we'll talk about, and as I'm sure your listeners know, a very different type of disease, um, but uh, a lot of similarities in terms of what the government's got to focus on and what it should be doing. Yeah. So yeah, I want to get to that. But before we do that, let me ask you, 
who the key players in the executive branch in the executive branch were in supporting you in dealing with the pandemic part of your portfolio. You know, who were they and then what were your expectations of each of them? Sure. So um, the key players in a response to a pandemic, or in the case of Ebola, an epidemic, you're obviously first and foremost, you're going to be involving uh, those in the healthcare and public health uh, policy settings. So that's the head of the Centers for Disease Control, uh, the head of Health and Human Services, um, the head of the FDA. Uh, and of course, the top infectious disease experts. So Tony Fauci, who's now uh, nearly a household name, uh, yeah, he's a hero, <laughs> and a hero, justifiably so. I will yes, say, Michael, yes. I know you know him, and I worked very closely with him during Ebola. He is indeed a national treasure. So he's going to be right it. at the. At the I center. saw a tweet the other day where he was being nominated as the world's most sexiest man. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And uh, I, I can only imagine that that is something he never thought he would be, he would be seeing. Um, okay. So all of those folks, quite obviously. But importantly, the State Department, the um, folks at uh, USAID, the Agency for International uh, Development, the intelligence community, um, the Department of Homeland Security, who of course have responsibility for borders and transportation. The State Department um, shouldn't be forgotten here because there's so much that goes into a global response or should go into a global response and diplomacy. Um, you know, in the response to Ebola, it took a global effort, a global diplomatic effort uh, to contain that working with the brave uh, folks in West Africa to contain uh, that disease. Uh, And then, of course, the military. The military was a very important uh, aspect of um, the Ebola response. Um, We're seeing, obviously, parts of uh, the military getting mobilized in response to uh, the coronavirus and uh, a of course, I should mention here, if folks don't know, when I reference the Department of Homeland Security, that would also include, of course, FEMA, the Federal Emergency right. uh, Management Agency. Yeah. So what did you expect from the IC? So uh, the IC, I would expect, um, and what I saw and did get in my uh, former role, is um, both an early warning system. Um, as well as uh, a source of continuous analysis about what other countries, uh, what is the international response, how are other countries dealing uh, with the epidemic, with the pandemic. So I would have expected, um, if I were still in my old seat today, I would have expected to see uh, intelligence about what uh, our intelligence community was seeing emerging out of China. Mm-hmm. Um, back in January and December, I would have expected to see what they uh, were seeing and what they were thinking and understanding about the Chinese response, uh, the Chinese government's response. And I would, throughout this, I would be expecting to get from them um, information about what other countries are doing, how they are postured, how much confidence we can have in um, the the clarity and the accuracy of the information we're getting in the public domain. Uh, so I would be looking to the IC for all of that. Is there a, a difference in how you think about early warning from the IC versus early warning from CDC? 
So, um, I guess in some in some respects, yes. Um, the I would expect the IC to um, give me their best assessment about what, for instance, the Chinese government is doing and how they are approaching um, the their posture with regard to the pandemic uh, internally. I would expect the CDC to be giving uh, policymakers their best insight from a public health perspective, quite obviously. Um, how does the virus operate? What are they hearing from and getting from and talking to their public health colleagues around the world? That would be the information I'd be expecting to get from from CDC. And then all of this needs to be lashed together, right? Every what 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 the IC knows, CDC needs to know, absolutely, and, and right, and and you kind of brought that together around your table, right? That's exactly right. So you know, we would have um, you'd have all of those players that you and I have just talked about who would get together quite literally in the same room, in the situation room. Um, And that has to happen. And the only place really that can effectively happen, Michael, as you know, is in the White House. Um, And that's the job of the National Security Council. And it was the job, and I viewed it as my job as Homeland Security Advisor, particularly when uh, the issues are going to have such a direct and immediate impact on the homeland and where you do have to knit together these different uh, policy issues and response issues, they've got to come together in one place, and that is the situation room. And it's only in that room that you can really make sure that all that information is getting shared. And the public health professionals who, you know, frankly, outside the context of a pandemic or an epidemic, don't spend a whole hell of a lot of time in the situation room, right? Right. Um, But they absolutely need to be there for um, uh, it, for these discussions right alongside the kind of more traditional, if you will, players in the national security community, like the State Department, like the IC. So I hear you saying, Lisa, that, that you had two jobs at the end of the day with regard to pandemics, epidemics. One was dealing with actual outbreaks, right? Yep. And then the second would be preparing for future outbreaks, right? Sure. And the Obama administration, as you've already mentioned, had, I think, three outbreaks to deal with, um, H1N1 in 2009 before you got there, and then Ebola in 2014, and then Zika in 2015, 2016. You, You personally worked on the latter two. That's right. Can you walk us through sort of the story of one of those or both of those, whatever you see a fit, um, with an eye towards what did you learn Sure. From those experiences about what's important, what works, what doesn't? Sure. I mean, with respect to Ebola, um, that was really a, a situation where, as we saw this developing in West Africa, the internet, all the action, if you will, was international. Uh, we were watching it emerge in West Africa, the World Health Organization, which was, of course, the Um, international organization charged with responding to global pandemics uh, and major uh, public health events. I think by any measure, uh, that was a slow response. Um, And as we put our response in place, what became very clear is we needed to have both a a very forward-leaning global response and uh, international response centered in West Africa, 
all the while, while we were putting together and beefing up our domestic capabilities. Uh, So what did that mean? It meant uh, making sure we were thinking simultaneously about the international response effort, the diplomacy, the military deployment, because of course, President Obama ended up deploying some 3,000 troops and something Mm -hmm. called Operation United Assistance uh, to work with allies like uh, the UK and France uh, in countries in West Africa to build up capacity to contain uh, the outbreak there. At the same time, uh, we were very concerned that we would get an influx of cases here in the United States, uh, and we needed to make sure we had a public health capacity, not only to screen travelers, which we ended up putting in place a, a system to funnel, literally uh, take incoming flights uh, and only have them come to certain airports. I think we chose about five airports around the country for those flights to just come into so that we could establish a screening process with local public health officials and then track potential cases. Uh, And then also make sure that we had a network of hospitals where people were trained up to deal with this very deadly, very sophisticated um, disease that, you know, didn't crop up often in the United States. So we had to do all of those things at once. Uh, all the while, I and Susan Rice, who was at the time the National Security Advisor, uh, were dealing with a whole host of other issues. So the president rightly named um, Ron Klain as the person to come in and focus 100% of his time on making sure the government was working Uh, together on both this international and this domestic response. And what we learned is, and this is something Ron recommended to the president after, uh, as he was leaving his post as the Ebola response coordinator, he said, you should never again, Mr. President, have to uh, create a disease-specific czar. You ought to Mm -hmm. have that capability resident constantly in the National Security Council staff. Uh, Mm. And the president and his national security team took that advice. And so we set up something called the Global Health Security and Biodefense Directorate, a unit within the National Security Council staff who would focus every day, all day, um, 365 days a year on pandemic preparedness policy Uh, and response, getting ready for the next Ebola, the next Zika, the next, God forbid, new strain uh, of flu or novel virus. Just like we have a dedicated unit uh, to constantly think about where is the terror threat coming from and what should be our policy and our response capability there. Um, We had, we established this dedicated unit for pandemic, uh, for pandemic issues. And that was that was um, removed not so long ago, correct? Yeah, unfortunately, um, while that group, which was staffed by um, career public health, uh, foreign service officers, and uh, you know career people who had been drawn from uh, around the government, uh, experts in infectious disease and public health policy, et cetera, uh, they transitioned as does 99% of the National Security Council staff. They're all career folks who don't have any particular political allegiance in their job. They are uh, career subject matter experts. So they transitioned from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, and they stayed in place for a little while. 
But in the spring of 2018, unfortunately, that group, that unit within the National Security Council staff was disbanded. And its career leader, Admiral Tom Zemer, who's a very well-regarded official and expert on these issues, was reassigned. Uh, And at the same time, incidentally, uh, Michael, my successor, uh, Tom Bossert, who had taken over uh, and come in at the beginning of the Trump administration as the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor, he also was removed. So you had, for the first time since 9-11, as of the spring of 2018, no empowered Homeland Security Advisor who was at the, you know, at the highest rank of staff in the White House at the assistant to president level, uh, focused on these issues. And you had the dismantlement of this uh, pandemic um, or global health security unit. So no staff to reach to. No staff to reach to and no staff to really importantly, Michael, be that um, be that kind of uh, alarm. Right. They're they're the ones, you know, we talked about getting the early warning from the IC. They would be the yeah. first ones to get it, as you right. know, right? And, and right. in fact, I remember quite specifically when Ebola started in 2014, it was uh, the staff uh, who were at the time part of the Homeland Security uh, staff within the White House who came to me and said, we're seeing stuff that we're concerned about. We're worried about this uptick uh, of Ebola cases in West Africa. And they were the the early warning system, the kind of the smoke alarm, if you will, before uh, before we saw this really blossom into a full-blown fire. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Lisa Monaco. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So you guys were concerned, and I'm going to get your sense of how concerned, Mm -hmm. that Ebola could make its way from West Africa to the United States of America. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, one of the scariest calls I've ever received in uh, in my job at the White House was, didn't have anything to do, frankly, I'm not sure you and I ever talked about this before, Michael, didn't, although you and I had some scary calls when you were in your (laughs) former job and... Um, but one of the scariest calls I ever received was from Tom Frieden, who was at the time the head of the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. And he said, it was a Sunday night, as I recall, and he called me and he said, we have, uh, we have a case, this is an Ebola case in Lagos, in Nigeria. And he was very concerned, rightly mm-hmm. so, that in the mm-hmm. most populous country in Africa with, you know, thousand flights a day out of uh, Lagos into all points of, um, you know, the globe, right. you, had a, you had a positive case. Uh, so that was very sobering. And yes, we absolutely were concerned that it could come here um, and took the, took the steps I mentioned uh, from a 
screening of, of travelers' perspective uh, to address it. And I will say those measures, I think, were some of the same ones that were used in the last couple of months uh, in response to the coronavirus outbreak. You know what's interesting? I was out of government by that point. So I was watching this from the outside. And I don't think there was a sense among the general population about the significance of the risk. And and maybe it's just human nature, right? Mm. Till, the, till it actually shows up, people don't don't start worrying. But I don't remember among the population a general worry that Ebola was about ready to show up. Although certainly I can understand your concern. It's just it's well, just very interesting. It's interesting because my perspective on that was there was tremendous concern, although it was not um, commensurate with what the actual risk was. So, for instance, right. there was a right. great deal of panic and, frankly, a lot of misinformation out there about what you um, about what the disease was, how you could and couldn't get it, uh, and frankly, there was a lot of hysteria, uh, as I recall, that prompted calls for things like travel bans and quarantines. Uh, And so one of the things, and this was a big lesson from Ebola, and one that we uh, took to heart in our response to Zika, and one that I think informs and should inform our response to COVID, which is the most important thing you can do as a policymaker and as a leader in a pandemic or an epidemic public health issue is to speak clearly, consistently, um, and credibly, and be guided uh, by science and facts. That was the directive uh, from day one in Ebola uh, from President Obama. And he said, we are going to have a science-based, fact-based approach to all of the policy steps we take. So for instance, when there was a big uh, kind of drumbeat for total travel bans when it came to Ebola, the science didn't support that. The public Mm -hmm. health uh, experts were not supportive of that. Why? For two reasons. One, because in fact, the the facts about how you could get Ebola um, were quite different from what people thought. In other words, it is not nearly as transmissible as something like flu or something like coronavirus. Uh, You have to have very intimate contact with somebody who is very sick during the height of their being very, very sick. Very, very different, of course, from what we're experiencing now. Um, So, And the other concern that the public health professionals had, people like Tony Fauci and others said, look, if you ban travel, how are you possibly going to get public health workers to go and do what we absolutely need them to do to help contain this virus in West Africa if they think they're not going to be able to come back, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. so the, the directive was, and our ethos was, be science-based, be fact-based, and don't, uh, don't fall prey to the hysteria and, and repeat as often as possible the facts um, that that guide your response. So, in the second aspect of your job, you know, preparing for future outbreaks, you guys established this group inside the NSC staff. Mm-hmm. What did you have them do? What work did they do that was different from before in terms of planning yeah. for a future outbreak? So, one of the things we did, and again, this is a lesson out of Ebola, was. Um, they put together a playbook, if you will, 
uh, it's now been reported on and is the subject of a, of a story in Politico, I believe it was a couple of weeks ago. Um, but one of the things we, we said was, look, frankly, we probably were too slow in responding and getting our kind of act together as a federal government and as an interagency um, to respond to Ebola. Let's take those lessons learned. Let's put them down in a playbook for our successors, for the people who come after us, who are inevitably going to be dealing with some public health crisis. And here are the steps that we think and the indicators you should be looking for, for the types of decisions you're going to need to make, right? When should you be uh, engaging with the public health community about certain messaging? When should you be thinking about activating the national stockpile? Here are a whole series of questions that were very, very focused on the role of the coordinators of a governmental response inside the National Security Council staff. So that was one thing uh, that we did. And we also put together a uh, an exercise, if you will, a war game uh, for the transition. So uh, in the fall of 2016, quite obviously, we were very focused on making sure there was a very professional and comprehensive transition between the administration of President Obama and the incoming team from President-elect uh, Trump. Uh, and uh, we put together an exercise for the incoming national security team and the outgoing national security team to sit down and really talk through what are the issues you've got to be worried about and what kind of things are going to be coming at you. Uh, and here are some of the lessons that we learned. And we did that for a terrorism scenario, a cyber scenario, a hurricane. And importantly, uh, I said that we needed to add a pandemic scenario to this uh, exercise because I was so concerned that uh, and thought that it would be a, a certainty that the next administration would deal with some type of public health crisis. This is this famous now now famous meeting from yeah. January thirteenth that everybody's written about, right? That's right. Um, and it was yeah, uh, it was the week before uh, the inauguration. Is there anything, Lisa, that that you wish you would have done more of in terms of preparation? Sure. I mean, I think that um, the new strain of flu was the thing that we were very, very focused on as being a um, as kind of the nightmare scenario. And frankly, that was the scenario that we um, used in the exercise because you know we we frankly thought we probably dodged a bullet with Ebola because it wasn't as transmissible as something like flu or something like coronavirus. And I think there's a whole set of issues around preparedness for that um, with vaccine development and the like that we probably could have been doing more um, to Stock, break down stockpiling? barriers. Is that, an, is well, that an issue we, or not? Well, we don't have, obviously, a, a, a universal flu vaccine. So it wasn't a question of developing that so much as um, improving our capability to move quickly with the private sector on getting a vaccine rolling, you know, something that we we tried to improve upon with the Ebola vaccine. But I think there was there's always more to be done there with stockpiling, which has now become a very a very big issue as people are rightly focused on the stockpile. 
you know, my sense, Michael, is there will be in the inevitable kind of look back at the response to coronavirus, there will and should be, I think, a good hard look at how we have a sustainable source of funding for both innovative drugs and and pharmaceuticals that can respond to uh, public health emergencies, as well as basic personal protective equipment and masks and ventilators and the like. Uh, I think the, the story that has emerged is that budget constraints required mm-hmm. a lot of trade-off decisions. Um, and you've seen the, the outgoing head of the stockpile say that he had to make very hard calls and decided to spend money for the stockpile, limited funds, to purchase um, medical countermeasures that otherwise there'd be no market for other than a government purchaser. Uh, And so he used his limited budget monies to do that rather than purchase PPE, which can be developed more quickly through the supply chain. Now, frankly, um, what we've seen is uh, that it takes some swift action to get that supply chain rolling. Uh, My own view is we should have started that a lot sooner back in December and January when we saw this emerging from China. Would your guess be that there's going to be even more focus on this going forward? And, or is there a risk that we, it kind of comes and goes and we slip back into taking some things for granted? What's your sense? So um, I think there is always that danger, as you know, um, government and policymakers respond in the wake of a crisis, but it's always hard to maintain that focus now, we saw our country and our culture really shift and change after 9-11. Um, and the focus on terrorism um, became something that uh, was, was sustained and you know, really altered the structure of government, uh, altered our society in so many ways. And so that was a crisis where the, where the focus remained. I actually think that we're going to have a similar response to this where it has taken this just profound tragedy uh, and incredible crisis, both public health and economic, to to get us to have a sustained focus on public health issues and pandemic preparedness and response, which I believe ought to be treated as the national security issue that it is and receive that sustained focus. And I wonder wonder to what extent the national security community, the IC in particular, you know, will will see this going forward as a more fundamental part of their job, right? Yeah. All the way from monitoring on the ground and helping CDC think about warnings to the right collection against governments that might not be telling us the full truth to doing the analysis on all the issues you talked about. Uh, you know, it, I would think that would become a higher priority. I I would think it would. And as you know, I, I think you can imagine, Michael, if you and I were back in our both, both back in our old roles, we'd be having discussions about how we ought to be altering the requirements, right? And the intelligence priorities on exactly these issues. And You'd be a, calling me all the time asking for, <laughs> for things. <laughs> right. And, and having, I think, a very... Uh, needed discussion on what trade-offs would that require, what, um, what issues of 
trust might that um, engender between the public health and intelligence communities? You know, uh, it's it's actually eerily reminiscent, Michael, of how we had to break down the wall between the law enforcement and intelligence community in yes. the wake of 9-11. Um, the public health community and the intelligence community, they're, you know, they don't usually talk to each other, in my experience, right. inside government. Right. Um, I had a reporter call me the other day and yeah. said, does CIA work with the CDC? And I have to, I, I said, look, I haven't been there for seven years. I don't know. But when I was the deputy director, I was never aware of any right. interaction at all between CIA and CDC. Right. Um, and look, and there's very real concerns and there should be from the public health and the medical community about, you know, making sure that the communities they operate in, they can be trusted, right? And they're right. not seen right. as collectors. And, and so right. we should never undermine their credibility in, in those settings. Um, right. But by the same token, we've got to improve our capability. And, and look, in this issue, um, everything I've read publicly, which is, of course, the only thing I have access to, indicates that the intelligence community did give warning, right, and was on top of this. Uh, and the question is, what were the policymakers doing with it? So, Lisa, with all of that as background, <laughs> and as far as you can tell from the outside looking in on the coronavirus outbreak as a government, mm -hmm. are we now where we need to be or do we still have some way to go to get there from a, from a policy kind of management sense of this? What is, what's your sense of that? So I think we're not where we need to be. Um, I, I should say, I think we've made a lot of strides in the last couple of months my concern is that we did squander about 10 weeks um, between, you know, seeing this emerge in December and January, and then really starting to activate uh, the federal government uh, in, frankly, the middle of March. It wasn't until the middle of March when you saw the, the White House and the federal government really kind of kick into gear from a policy perspective. I mean, I think the the public health community and the vaccine folks and the like were, were working, but um, to, to really get kind of guidance from the federal government about things like social distancing and the like, that didn't happen till mid-March and frankly was following the states, right? You had a series of very aggressive governors taking uh, and mayors taking steps, and then the, the federal government was coming behind there. And it wasn't until mid-March where uh, a national disaster uh, and a Stafford Act declaration was kicked in to allow states to access uh, a, a big pot of disaster relief monies and the like. So uh, I think that we are not where we need to be. We're not where we need to be on testing. Testing is, you know, our, our former colleague, Juliet Kayyem, used this phrase, testing is the original sin or failure in testing is the original mm -hmm. sin. Um, in this response. And I think it's true. And it's going to be critical to have a comprehensive uh, testing capability if we're going to be able to return to some semi-normalcy, right? That's only going to be uh, in conjunction with a capability to test widely. And we're not there without, yet. Without risking a second wave. That's exactly right. Um, because returning to work is going to involve understanding, you know, where those case spikes are. And uh, we're not going to possibly do that without both diagnostic testing and uh, testing for potential immunity. 
So you talked earlier, Lisa, a little bit about the importance of leadership in these kind of situations. What What's your sense, having gone through Ebola and Zika, of what the American people need from their leaders at a moment like this? So there, the leadership is um, critical in, quite obviously, in communication first and foremost, right? I think the American people are looking to their leaders to level with them. Uh, and they're looking for their leaders to lead. In other words, to, to state clearly and consistently, uh, this is the state of the problem. This is what we're facing. And here's what you can do about it, right? And importantly, mm-hmm. here's what we don't know, but we are going to uh, be transparent with you about that and about what we do know. And uh, we're going to do so credibly and clearly. And that's first and foremost, I think, what what people want and need from their leaders, uh, clarity and compassion and an understanding that people need, need to know, people need to understand that their leaders um, recognize what they're going through. They're not minimizing it, but they're also giving them something to do, a sense of agency. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are, we are um, just have a couple more minutes here. I'd, I'd like to ask you Sure. Two more questions. One is, if you think about the countries have, that, that have done well mm-hmm. um, at managing this and the countries that haven't done so well, what do you think the, the differences are? Well, I think some of the differences are, um, you know, speed, you know, moving quickly, right? The biggest thing in a crisis is um, to be willing to really pull the trigger and to make what seems like a very hard call. Uh, and, you know, the fear is people are going to think you're overreacting um, and you can't let that stop you, right? Because it's in, it's in looking back and wishing that you'd acted more quickly uh, that, you know, you, you run into problems. So speed, decisiveness, and uh, willingness to, to speak clearly uh, about about the problem, and then, frankly, also, uh, what we've seen is those countries that were willing to put in place measures uh, and quite drastic measures when you when you think about it, based on our um, sense of uh, you know civil liberties and and freedom of movement. Those who have been able to flatten the curve quickly uh, are the ones who you know put in place very quickly measures that are quite foreign to us uh, and right. that do not jive with. Um, you know, the American sensibility. Yeah. And then, then the last question, Lisa, we talked about how this may change the preparedness for a pandemic going forward, how this might change the way the traditional national security community sees a role here. Do you think this is going to change us as a society in fundamental ways or too soon to tell, right? You see all of these op-eds with people saying, here's the 10 ways we're going to change, right? Here's the nine ways we're going to change. Is it too early to talk about those things or not? Um, I think it is a little bit early to talk about those things, um, although I understand it, right? Everyone wants to see, wants to understand where is the light at the end of the tunnel? When will I be able to um, get my life back? And so it's, I think, quite natural to think about what is that life going to look like? And in the near term, um, I think we will be changed in very fundamental ways. I think we will not be returning to 
you know, large gatherings and full restaurants and our same uh, work environments for quite some time. I mean, I think return is going to be quite staggered and incremental um, Mm -hmm. for a while. And so that is going to change our our sensibilities for a little while. Um, My hope is that it doesn't fundamentally alter us, but in fact, um, makes us uh, more resilient and value uh, our resiliency. Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thanks for having me. That was Lisa Monaco. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis. Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.